For the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn to Zechariah chapter 11. Some decisions can bring terrible consequences. Friday evening, Paul and I were talking about what we should grab for dinner. We decided we would order out quickly and went to one of those Chinese places that, uh, you know, they kind of leave the food around in the trays for a while. So I decided egg roll. So in my little bag, they put an egg roll, semi-petrified. And I decided, it's probably okay. I'll eat it. Dipped it in plum sauce, had a bite, and swirled it around in my mouth and said, this doesn't quite taste right. So I had another decision. (laughs) Do I continue or do I spit it out and get rid of it? I continued. (laughs) The next morning I woke up and totally paid for a horrible decision and paid for it for the whole day. I was that close to calling you, TJ, and saying, man, you got to say something tomorrow because I'm not going to make it. Thankfully, that passed. But there are some decisions that don't pass so quickly, are there? There are those decisions that we make that have far-reaching consequences long-term. And that's what we find as we come to Zechariah chapter 11. When we looked into the 10th chapter of Zechariah, we saw hope for the children of Israel. The hope of a coming Messiah who will establish His kingdom on earth. The hope of a people who will be restored and reign alongside the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom and have a part in that kingdom that is unique and important. But then as we come to chapter 11... There's a different tone. There's a different message for the children of Israel. What we find as we come to chapter 11 is a warning passage and a prophetic passage about a time in Israel's history when they will not follow the right shepherd, but they will turn instead and follow the wrong shepherd. And there will be terrible consequences as a result of both decisions. Number one, the decision to not follow the true shepherd. And then number two, the decision to follow the wrong shepherd. And that's what we want to see this morning as we get into this text. Now, this is not one of those texts that's a feel-good text. You won't walk away saying, oh, I feel so uplifted today. And that's okay. Don't you find in life that it's not all a bowl of cherries, it's absolutely sometimes the pits. And we have to deal with that. It's hard. And it's hard because of sinful choices that we make. So as we look into this text, please, don't just see this as a history about Israel. 
and point your fingers at Israel and say, wow, how could they have made such bad choices? Look to yourselves and ask yourselves, do I make the same bad choices? Do I choose to follow the wrong shepherd? We come to this text, and as we look at verses 1 through 3, we find a passage of Scripture that describes what it's like for Israel rejecting the Messiah and how that brings some terrible consequences. And really, as we look at the first part of this passage, verses 1 through 14, it's talking about the consequences of a nation who rejects their Messiah King and follows one that they should not. In the first three verses, we find that one of the consequences to rejecting Jesus as Messiah when he came to earth, offered himself as Messiah to Israel, one of the consequences was God brought calamity on the land. Now this is not a new principle, is it? As we've looked through the minor prophets, we have seen that God's covenant with Israel meant that if they would follow and obey him, he would bless the land and protect them. If they chose to go a different path, God would remove his protection from the land, and God would not bless the land itself or its people. And so that's what we find initially as we come to these descriptions of not only Israel, but the surrounding land. And what Zechariah begins to do is describe a land that was devastated. Now, let me point this out. When it comes to prophecy, the prophets often use poetic language to explain things. That's number one. And then number two, we have to understand this about the Eastern mindset. The scripture was written not with a Western perspective, but with an Eastern perspective. We as Westerners love to think in a linear fashion. Everything is chronological. Everything is laid out just as it happens. And so when we present a story, what we do is we'll say it begins here and ends here, and this is what happened in between. That's the way we present it. In the Eastern mind, they're not quite as concerned about the chronological aspect. When they want to be chronological, they can But very often what they'll do is talk about major events that take place. And there may be gaps, they may be out of sync, but there is always a major event that is impressing upon us an important truth. The major event that is described in verses 1 through 3 is the destruction of the land that is surrounding Jerusalem. And many Bible scholars believe that this description is not something that has taken place in the past, not even something that will take place in the immediate, but something that will take place later from Zechariah's perspective, when Israel as a nation rejects the Messiah. When we look at the description of Lebanon being devoured by fire, It's cedars being burned. We don't get the perspective that the people who would have heard Zechariah's message would get. Lebanon was known for its cedars. It was a place of beauty. 
It was a place that was productive. If you wanted great wood, you went to Lebanon and you would get the cedars of Lebanon. What is being predicted, prophesied here, is that these cedars would be devoured by fire. And what many Bible scholars believe, and I agree with them, is the devouring of these cedars came by the Roman occupation as they were moving into the Holy Land around 70 A.D. They were taking cedars to build siege works, and then they were burning what they left behind. That was a strategic move because when you go and you conquer a land, you don't want them to quickly rebuild. So what do you do? You devastate it. Scorched earth policy, leaving nothing that they can rebuild. And this applies not only to Lebanon, but also to the other areas, the oaks of Bashan, the pasture land around them, the thickets of Jordan where lions still roamed. All of these things were subject to a scorched earth policy. Why? In 70 AD, Titus came and leveled the land in an attack against Jerusalem. And what is amazing about Titus is this. Jesus gave prophecy that this was coming. And here's the setup. When Jesus went to the leadership of Israel and presented himself as Messiah, they rejected him. Why did they reject him? Because there was ample evidence that Jesus was Messiah. None of them could point to Scripture and say, reject him because of this. They had a position of power that they wanted to hold on to. And so when Jesus came and presented himself as Messiah, their power was more important to them than the presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so they rejected him. And here is the amazing point to all of this. Them wanting to hold on to their power caused them to reject the Messiah. And then ultimately, Jesus is crucified in 33 A.D. Titus comes in 70 A.D. In the space of 37 years, they lost it anyway. Isn't it amazing how we want to hold on to things and say, this is mine. God, you can't touch this. I'm keeping this. To the exclusion of following God. Only to see that the things that we cling to have no reality in them, no purpose in them, no hope in them. They're gone. What I try to cling to is like sand. And it goes right between my fingers the tighter I squeeze. This is what the people of Israel would discover. And God would demonstrate it to them by the ruining of their land. Their decision not only meant the loss of their system, but it meant the loss of everything. And I would submit to you, 
that for any who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah, rejecting him ultimately means the loss of everything. All of the things that you would use to supplant him are gone. So here, the children of Israel needed to understand that, and Zechariah is warning them about that in these first three verses. But then he goes on. Not only will they experience the ruination of the land, but they will also experience the removal of God's protection. The children of Israel are God's chosen people. He loves them. He loves them still. That is the faithfulness of God's love. But God is speaking to his people in this text. And he wants them to understand that Yes, they are his people, but no, they can't continue to reject him and experience all the blessing that God would love to give them if they would only follow him. So what does Zechariah do? Zechariah does a visual aid for the children of Israel. You know what we find with the prophets? Very often the prophets would do something that was a physical, observable act so that the people could see firsthand what they were doing and use that as an illustration to illustrate a spiritual truth. We saw that with the prophet Hosea, didn't we? Hosea had a tough one. Go marry a prostitute as an illustration of how Israel has been a prostitute as far as their faith. Tough visual aid, wasn't it? Now here, Zechariah is told to go be a shepherd. It says in verse 4, This is what the Lord my God says, Pasture the flock marked for slaughter. Now, This is a powerful statement. What he's saying to Zechariah is this. Zechariah, I want you to go and pasture a flock. But this isn't an ordinary flock. This is a flock that is destined for slaughter. Why? Because of the way that the flock treats its shepherd. Look at what the text goes on to say. Pasture the flock marked for slaughter, verse 4. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will hand everyone over to his neighbor and his king. And they will oppress the land and I will not rescue them from their hands. Now here, the imagery is that Zechariah is to shepherd a flock that will ultimately reject him and things will be handed over to other shepherds that are not loving and caring for the sheep. And this visual image has both a near and a far application. The near application is this. The people of Israel, even during the time of Zechariah, were departing from God again. 
after 70 years in captivity, after a number of years in rebuilding the temple, here we go again. Falling into the same trap of relegating God to the back burner and pursuing their own agenda apart from God's. As a matter of fact, look at how those shepherds are described. They have no concern for the sheep. Apparently, it was coming from the head down. The shepherds, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel were unconcerned for them. They were more interested in padding their own pockets in order to make an immediate return rather than thinking about the eternal and thinking about God. That applied to Zechariah's day. But remember, prophecy often has a near and a far application. The near application was that. The far application was an image of what Israel would do to the ultimate shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came into their midst, taught God's truth. As John said, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. That's a picture of what Israel would do to the ultimate shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, in rejecting him. You see, Zechariah was speaking not only to the people of his day, but to several generations removed, where there would be leaders who would step into the leadership of Israel, pursue a system that they put into place so that they could rule and lead to their own benefit. And as a result, great harm would come to the people as they reject their Messiah. Look at how the text progresses. Verse 7. So I pastured the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the sheep. And then I took two staffs and called one favor and one union, and I pastured the flock. Now here is this imagery. The flock goes and they follow these shepherds who are interested in only their own wealth and enhancement. But here is the faithful shepherd, Zechariah, who comes and shepherds them anyway, caring for them, loving for them, and having two staffs, one marked favor, one marked union. And let's talk about what those staffs mean. The staff that is called favor is also the idea of grace. When God, when he leads his flock, rather than leading his flock by oppression, he leads them by grace. You don't drive the sheep. You don't abuse the sheep. You show grace. And when we look at how God has dealt and will deal with Israel, that's what God does. He extends the staff of favor, of grace. There's another staff, the staff of union. Israel had been sent to many nations. The northern kingdom, captivated by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. And then kingdom after kingdom came in and it got scrambled. Some of the Jews went to Egypt. Some of them 
went north. They scattered all over the then known world to escape persecution, to flee from conquering armies. What God was promising and what God desired for the children of Israel was union to bring them all back together. And when we look at Israel during the time of Messiah, don't we see a partial fulfillment of that as the tribes were starting to come back together? But what happened? They turned, rejecting the Messiah, and as a result, those staffs are broken. Look at what the text goes on to say. In verse 8, the scripture goes on to describe what happens after these staffs. I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union, and I pastured the flock. And in one month, I got rid of three shepherds. Now, in one month, I got rid of three shepherds. Guess what? <laughs> one con- commentary I read said there are 40 interpretations of this one sentence as to what the three shepherds represent. I don't want to make 41. (laughs) So let me encourage you. No one knows exactly what it means. What it does mean is this. There will be a group of shepherds that are gotten rid of. Now we can speculate with the complete annihilation of Jerusalem, the priestly caste was sent away, the prophets were dispersed, and then the king certainly was taken down. The three shepherds could have been prophet, priests, and kings. That won't come again until Jesus comes, but that's one of 40 interpretations, so take it for what it's worth. But then the text goes on and it says this, The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. And when we look at this, we say, wow. That is some strong language that he's using there. The image, of course, is, I think, of when Jesus is rejected, detested by the spiritual leaders of Israel. But what no one understands is this. When we reject God, there are consequences. And one of the greatest consequences is this. God leaves us to our own devices and no longer steps in and intervenes in protection. One of the saddest passages that I find in the New Testament is Romans chapter 1 where it says God gave them over again and again and again. Where people have the opportunity to pursue their own course apart from God. And God says if that's the course you will follow, then follow it, but also experience all of the consequences that come with it. And I think that's what happens here. If you've read accounts of Jerusalem's siege by Rome, you know that terrible things happened in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem experienced the siege 
And in case you don't know what a siege is, basically it is an overwhelming army encamped outside the walls of a city. And they play a waiting game. The army is having a cookout, tailgating, waiting for the people inside to die of thirst and starvation. At first, the city is okay. We'll ration stuff. But every night, they look out and they see the fires burning. They smell the meat that's being cooked on the fires. And they're saying, boy, I'm hungry. Then it goes on. And the rations and the food run out. And they're literally starving. You see, armies would do this because there's no loss of personnel. When you have emaciated opponents, you go in and overwhelm them, and it's a piece of cake. So you wait it out, and that happened in Jerusalem. The eating their own flesh is a graphic description of the cannibalism that takes place during sieges. A terrible reality, but a reality that came because of rejection and disobedience. One of the most tragic things we can experience is God letting us make the wrong decision to follow the wrong path. This is what God did with the people who rejected Messiah. And these are the terrible consequences that came as a result of it. So look at verse 10. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all of the nations. I revoked on that day so that the afflicted of the flock were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. Now when it talks about God breaking the staff called favor, what it means is this, God no longer extended his favor to those were rejecting him. Now, that is a scary thought. God's grace is always available. But there comes a point where we so reject the grace of God that we will not respond to it. We won't receive it. We can reach that point. Reject God the first time, it becomes easier to reject him the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time. And a hardening takes place. And we become so hard-hearted that there's nothing left to respond to God in any way. Grace won't be operative in our lives because we are so hardened, we have no interest in it. God breaks the staff. Look at verse 14. Then I broke my second staff called Union, breaking the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Here's a second staff. The Union, the bringing them back together would cease and there would be a dispersal. And when we look from 70 A.D. on, there has been a dispersal throughout the world of the Jewish people. Their union broken. Now, there's a partial regathering in the nation of Israel today. 
But the population inside Israel and the population outside Israel, vastly different. Way more Jewish people outside Israel than inside when you look at how they're scattered throughout the world. So God is saying that the result of their rejection was a terrible result. A terrible result. What we need to understand is there are consequences for the decisions that we make about God. For the people almost 2,000 years ago in the rejection of Jesus, it meant national disaster that has continued for 2,000 years. For the individual today who says, I will reject receiving Jesus as my Savior, there are consequences as well. You do not have the opportunity to know and experience the grace and the favor of God in your life now. And then when this life ends, there is an eternal separation from God in a place called hell where you experience the wrath of God for an eternity. Now, these are things that aren't politically correct to talk about, but they're biblically correct. And God wants us to talk about them because the stakes are too high. Rejecting God brings terrible consequences. Perhaps the greatest illustration of this are verses 12 and 13. In 12 and 13, we find an interlude in here where the prophet Zechariah talks about 30 pieces of silver. Notice it says this, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So here, Zechariah is breaking relationship with shepherding the flock. And he's saying, go ahead and pay me and send me on my way. So what do they do? They pay him 30 pieces of silver. And then verse 13 goes on to say, And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, let me ask you something. Does that sound familiar at all? We talk about it every Easter, don't we? The betrayal of Jesus by Judas, right? 30 pieces of silver. And this just isn't reading into the text. We have biblical authority about what happened here being a picture of what happened with Judas, And what we see illustrated by what went on with Judas is regret that doesn't lead to repentance. Let's look at Matthew, chapter 27, verse 3. And this is what the scripture says. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, (coughs) he was seized with remorse and returned the silver coins to the chief priests and the elders I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself. 
Now, this passage of Scripture is directly tied to this passage in Zechariah. And what he's saying is this. In Zechariah's passage, the picture that is given is that of one being devalued. The 30 pieces of silver was roughly the value of a slave. And so here is Zechariah, the shepherd, being devalued. He uses sarcasm when he says, a handsome price. In reality, what he's saying is, yeah, thanks for nothing. But they had devalued him to that point. And I think it's significant because if Zechariah is picturing Jesus, and I think this text definitely shows us that he was, because it's born out in the New Testament, then what he's saying is the wicked shepherds were devaluing their Messiah, Jesus. And they were assessing to him the value of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. And so just as Zechariah was to go to the potter and take the 30 pieces of silver and throw them into the temple where this potter was probably working to make vessels for temple use, so Judas would go back to the wicked shepherds and take the money that he had been given to betray Jesus and throw it into the temple as well. It's a prophecy that was literally fulfilled when Judas betrayed him. Now, for Judas, there was remorse. He looked at this and he said he knew he had sinned. And he felt bad about it, so he didn't want the blood money and threw it back to them. But in what we know of Judas, the remorse never led to repentance. He never turned to God. He felt bad about his sin, but he didn't deal with his sin as far as his relationship with God. And you know, I think there are a lot of people that I've met who are very much like that. When they discover sin in their life and the separation that it causes between them and God. As a pastor, I've sat down with people who have wept openly about their sin, but are unwilling to forsake it, are unwilling to have God change them so that they can forsake it. It's got a hold of them. And they're more willing to reject God than to repent from their sin. This is a picture of what Judas did. But it's also a picture of what all of Israel did. Who did Judas get the 30 pieces of silver from? The chief priests and the scribes. The leadership, the spiritual leadership of Israel. How did they respond when Judas confronted them with their sin in it? I take no responsibility. That's on you. By the way, do you know what the chief priests and scribes did with the 30 pieces of silver that were returned? They went and bought the potter's field where Judas would eventually 
be buried. Interesting, the correlation between the event and this prophecy. So here is Israel rejecting the Messiah, rejecting the one true hope, but that's not where this passage ends. When we come to the 15th verse, and by the way, point two will go a lot faster than point one. We find as we come to verse 15 that there is a shepherd that Israel will foolishly follow. And I believe that that shepherd is the Antichrist referred to here as the foolish shepherd. Look at what the scripture says. Then the Lord said to me, Take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost, or seek the young, or heal the injured, or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hoofs. Prophetically, verses 15 and 16 are talking about a shepherd who will arise who will abuse the flock. And we see, borne out in the New Testament, that there is one who will become, believe it or not, a leader of Israel, that Israel herself will embrace as good, but will turn on them in the middle of what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. That poor shepherd, foolish shepherd, is the Antichrist. Look at what Paul says in Thessalonians 2.4. He, referring to the Antichrist, will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. There is a ruler that is coming on the scene called the Antichrist who will demand worship of himself. Now this won't take place immediately when the tribulation period begins. The tribulation period is a 7-year period called the period of Jacob's trouble where God will ultimately judge planet earth as planet earth turns from God to this false god, the antichrist. Initially, Israel is going to think that he is the one who is sent by God. Daniel bears this out when Daniel writes, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Now that would be the seven years of the tribulation. The tribulation lasts seven years. And it says this, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. In other words, three and a half years There's going to be peace on earth. Everybody's going to think, wow, this world leader is awesome. He's brought peace to the Middle East. He's united the world around him. He is a step that is decreed, is poured out on him. Turns on Israel. The covenant with breaking the covenant in the middle. So that would be the foolish shepherd that the children of Israel will follow prophetically. They reject the one true shepherd but initially follow the false shepherd. But there is hope for Israel because when he turns on them, they turn on him. 
and they recognize the mistake that they've made. This was something that Jesus warned Israel about even during his ministry. In the Gospel of John, it says, I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. They rejected Jesus only to receive one who is coming later and that one who comes later, the Antichrist. The one who will point them away from God toward himself. And in the middle of that tribulation, that's where it takes place. But there's hope. There will be a removal of the foolish shepherd by God's power. Look at verse 17. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered and his right eye totally blinded. Now, poetic language is used here once again. And we need to think about what the scripture means when it talks about the right arm. The right arm is a symbol of power. And so what the word of God is promising is this foolish shepherd, this antichrist, his power will be removed. His arm will wither. The eye represents intelligence, the ability to see, the ability to understand. His eye will become blind. He is not all-powerful. Listen, we see all kinds of movies about the Antichrist. Hollywood has a great imagination, and they make him out to be invincible. But there's one who has absolute sovereign power in this world, and that is God not the Antichrist. And so the Scripture already tells us what's going to happen to the Antichrist. In the book of Revelation, it says this, the beast, this is another name for the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and the worship of his image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. He is condemned. The lake of fire, hell, was created for those who oppose God. Initially, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Ultimately, Satan and all of those who have rejected God throughout the existence of creation. This is the outcome of refusing to follow the one true God. So why does Zechariah share all of this with us? More importantly, why did God inspire it for people to study for generations? I think it's inspired and given to us to warn us about turning away from the living God, to pursue our own devices, or to pursue one who would come and claim to be better. There's only one God and only one Messiah. And we should never be deceived by counterfeits. God wants us to be faithful in turning to him and in following him. 
So the encouragement from this text, follow the Messiah. Follow Jesus. Follow the good shepherd. The one who cares for his sheep. The one who gave his life to ransom the sheep so that we don't wind up in the same place that the Antichrist winds up. This morning, I would encourage you, if you have never put your faith in the living God who provided his son, Jesus Christ, to be your sacrifice, what are you waiting on? Why would you not? God offers forgiveness and a relationship with him. So I encourage, I I even implore you, if you have never received Jesus as your Savior, do so today. Secondly, there are many people who are going to fall prey to that deception. And I don't believe it's going to be long before these things start to fall into place and take place. We see many signs and clues that this could be around the corner. The stage is set. We don't know when the curtains open. So we have a ministry, don't we? We have a message of Jesus' grace to take to those around us. So let's be faithful to carry that message to others. Gracious God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the reminder that it is to us that we need to turn to you, stop rejecting, and absolutely receive who you have given us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would ask, Lord, that we would be faithful to carry the message of his grace to others. And I pray this in Jesus' name.